Good morning, everyone. The man looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. I wonder if you've had that experience with a tradesperson where you have to call them back for a second visit. Does that ring any bells for you? If it's a plumber, electrician, dishwasher, technician, and they come to your house and they do some work and they fix something, but the next day you have to call them back and say, yeah, look, it's better, but the problem is still there. And if you're lucky, they come again with no call-out fee this time, and they sort it out properly on the second visit. Ring any bells? I had the plumber at our house this week, once again, to look at our sewer. It's more than his second visit, let's put it that way. Uh, it's not his fault, there's tree roots, etc., etc., but the problem still remains half solved. And here's the thing, if my plumber is looking for a story that makes him look good, perhaps a glowing one-sentence review to put on his Instagram profile or his next round of fridge magnets, I'm not the guy he's going to come to. The guy who required a second and a third and a fourth visit. It doesn't make him look good. He'll get that review from some other customer. I'm sure he has other customers whose problems have been solved in five minutes. At the end of today's reading from Mark, we heard a very strange healing story, didn't we? On the face of it is a story where Jesus fails in his first attempt and has to have a second go. It's a strange one. None of the other gospel writers include this story. It's only Mark. If you were writing a book and your only goal was to make Jesus look good, you would leave out this particular episode. It's the only occasion where Jesus takes two attempts to properly heal someone. Now, often in the Bible, Jesus is an example. Jesus is a role model. He is the perfect human that we should copy. But in this story, Jesus actually is not the role model to admire and copy. Don't go to work tomorrow and try and be more Christ-like by doing a half-baked job the first time and then having to come back and finish it later. That's not the moral of the story. Jesus is not the role model here. There's actually a different role model to admire and copy. And we'll find out who that is a bit later on. Now, today's our last week in this sermon series on Mark. We've been looking at the whole first half of Mark's gospel. We're stopping just before we hit the big turning point in the middle. And the question in the air through Mark so far has been, who is this man? That's the question that's been in everyone's mind. Some are asking it skeptically. Who is this man? Who does he think he is? Others are asking it in awe with their jaws dropping. Who is this man? But everyone, whether they're far off or following in closely, everyone is struggling to get a clear picture of his real identity. Who is this man? And since early on, there's been many who have been very suspicious of Jesus. The people in authority feel threatened by him. The religious purists feel offended by him. The Pharisees and the Herodians have started conspiring together about how to get him killed. And in chapter 8, verse 11, where we started reading today, some of those Pharisees come to Jesus to question him. But we know this isn't honest curiosity. 
It says they come to test him. And to do that, they ask for a sign from heaven. Now, you, you might have noticed Jesus has been going around healing people who've been sick all their lives. He's been freeing people from the clutches of evil spirits. He's been miraculously feeding thousands of people using just a handful of bread rolls. And these guys want to ask for a sign. They knew all the stuff that Jesus had been doing. But in their cynicism, they challenged him to do something bigger and better. Maybe a bit of fire from heaven, Elijah style. Maybe that would do the trick. But they're not asking because they're curious about whether he can do it. They're asking it to test him. They're asking him because they're confident that he can't do it. They're confident he's a fraud. They can't see, they don't want to see who he really is. Now, the Pharisees were big believers in tradition, big believers in the traditions of their ancestors, and this sceptical testing attitude they are exhibiting is very much following in their ancestors' footsteps. We see it all through the Old Testament. Today we read Psalm 95, and did you notice how the first half of that psalm is this uplifting call to worship the Lord? Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. It's all very nice. But then suddenly in the middle, the psalm changes direction. It suddenly turns into a stern warning. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. The Psalms referring back to what happened way back in Exodus 17. This is back when God had just rescued his people out of Egypt. They had the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and all that. The Lord rescued his people from Pharaoh's army. He provided manna and quail, that is food literally falling from the sky. And after all that, his people turn around and quarrel with Moses because they're thirsty. And they say, Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? The place where they were was named Massa which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarrelling, because the Israelites quarrelled and because they tested the Lord. That generation back then wasn't saying, I wonder if the Lord can give us some water, let's find out. They were saying, the Lord can't give us water, the Lord doesn't care about us. They were putting the Lord to the test. This was an ongoing issue for Israel all through the Old Testament. That's why the psalm talks about it, and that's why here in Mark... We have the Pharisees who have come to put Jesus to the test. Verse 12, Jesus sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And instead of calling down fire from heaven or whatever, which he could have done if he wanted to, he leaves them, gets back in his boat, heads off to the other side of the lake. The Pharisees were blind, willfully blind. They asked for a sign, not because they're curious, but because they want to catch Jesus out. They refuse to see who he truly is. So Jesus leaves off in the boat with his disciples. 
These are the guys who Jesus has called to become his close followers, to leave their normal life behind, to travel with him and learn from him. They've also seen everything that he's done. Along the way, Jesus has explained to them in private the full meaning of his public teaching. He's even granted them authority to cast out demons and heal people in his name. But these disciples are still grappling with the question, who is this man? And in this scene on the boat, we can see they still don't have a clear picture. Now, this journey across the Lake of Galilee, it's going to take a while. And in the hurried departure from Dalmanutha, the disciples haven't brought enough food for the journey. You can't stop off at Macca's on this trip. They're thinking it's going to be a long journey on empty stomachs. But Jesus isn't thinking about that. Jesus is thinking about what happened before they left. And he gives his disciples a warning. Verse 15, he says, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, I wonder if anyone here bakes their own bread. Show of hands, any bakers? Just a handful. Does anyone make sourdough? There's a few sourdough makers in North Epping. Uh, My son Nathan and I sometimes make our own pizza bases. Uh, they're only mildly successful, to be honest. Uh, and we use these little packets of powdered yeast. And we put that in warm water and mix it through the flour and it's meant to make it rise. I don't know if it does anything, really. When Jesus talks about yeast, he's not talking about little packets of powder. It's more like sourdough starter. Leaven is another word. He's talking about how back then they would take a bit of last week's bread, which was starting to go a bit rotten, and add it into this week's dough to make it rise. That was the yeast of the day. When he talks about the yeast of the Pharisees, he's saying, beware of the old and rotten teaching of the Pharisees. But the disciples do not see what he's talking about. I think the reason he's mentioned yeast is because of this problem they've got with bread, and they go on discussing the limited supplies they've got. They're saying, oh, we're here in the middle of a lake. We've only got one bread roll. How could we possibly feed 13 people? At this point, I think Jesus gets, at the least, a bit exasperated with them. Verse 17, he says, why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And he points out the two occasions when he had not only fed great crowds with meagre supplies, but the disciples were the ones who'd picked up the bags of leftovers. These are the people that Jesus has brought into his inner circle. They're meant to be in the know. Back in chapter 4, Jesus has said that those on the outside who heard everything in parables, they were the ones who would see but not perceive hear but not understand. But back then he told his disciples, the insiders, that the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But now it seems that even though they'd been let in on the secret, even though they'd touched the leftover bread with their own hands, they still don't get it. Was all that instruction along the way for nothing? Are they just as blind and hard-hearted as the Pharisees? Now, the NIV translation that we're reading 
has in verses 17 and 21, it says, do you still not see or understand? It can also be translated as, do you not yet see or understand? And that rendering adds a bit of hope, doesn't it? But either way, at this point, the answer is no. They don't understand. They don't yet see. Even though they are the insiders, even though they've trusted Jesus enough to leave their homes and follow him around, even though they've learned a lot from him, so much blindness remains. It's not just the enemies of Jesus who have a problem with their sight. The followers of Jesus have a sight problem as well. In verse 19 onwards, Jesus asked them, how many baskets did you pick up? And they know the answer. They haven't literally got memory loss. They know a lot of facts. They know that Jesus is someone who can heal storms. They know that Jesus is someone who can heal the sick. They know that Jesus is someone who can feed crowds from very small supplies. They know lots and lots of facts about Jesus. But the way they're worried about food in the boat shows they still haven't realised who Jesus is for them. They lack this personal kind of knowledge of him. The facts haven't sunk down deep. They don't yet know him as their ultimate source of sustenance. They don't yet know him as the bread of life who will satisfy their deepest needs, give them life to the full, who can take that one little bit of bread and feed everyone on the boat with plenty left over. They remain blind. So Jesus leaves. No, I've got the wrong page. Start again. It's possible today to have both these kinds of spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is everywhere. It's possible today to have Pharisee blindness where your heart is set against Jesus and if you're honest with yourself, you'll admit that it actually doesn't matter what evidence he puts before you. You'll keep on saying, oh yeah, show me a real sign. It's quite possible to have Pharisee blindness today. But it's also possible to have disciple blindness. To be like those guys in the boat. To know lots and lots of facts about Jesus. To see what he can do for others. To have a trusting attitude towards his claims and even his commands. But to not quite realise who he is for you. To not quite get in your heart that Jesus is the one who will look after you completely, in everything. That if you're with him, you've got everything you need. It's possible to know lots of facts about Jesus, but to fail to fully entrust yourself to his care. It might be true of your life overall. It might be true of just certain details of your life. Are there areas of your life where you are fussing over bread and you need to hear Jesus' challenge? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you not yet understand? As we read on through the chapter, Jesus and his disciples, they they get through this journey without starving to death. And their boat pulls up at the town of Bethsaida where we get this strange two-step 
healing story. A group of friends bring a blind man. They beg Jesus to heal him with a touch. Healing with a touch was a common approach for Jesus. But we've seen in Mark, he's actually able to heal with just a word. And everywhere we, elsewhere, sorry, we learn that Jesus was actually able to heal with just a thought from, from miles away, if necessary. And when we realise that, we, we can see that the actions Jesus performs as he heals someone, whether it's touching them or spitting or whatever, these actions are not because that's necessary to get the job done, but for the benefit of the people watching. It's to teach the people around him something. And that's also the case with this two-step healing. It's to teach us something about spiritual blindness. Verse 23, Jesus spat on the man's eyes, put his hands on him and asked, do you see anything? And here is where we meet the role model in this story. Remember how I point out that in this section, Jesus is not the role model to admire and copy. Here is the moment where the role model appears. Verse 24, the blind man looks up and says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Now, two minutes ago, this guy was completely blind. He couldn't see a thing. Now, he can see some stuff. It would be easy for him to say, yes, I see people. They don't look quite like I expected, but it's much better than complete darkness. Thank you, I'll be on my way. And he'd go off and hug some trees and chop down some people. But actually this man had the wisdom and the humility to say, I still don't see well enough. He says, Jesus, there is still some blindness left in me. And after the man says that, Jesus touches his eyes again and the man sees everything clearly. Now, of course, there's a problematic and mistaken way we could interpret this. We could take it to mean that Christian conversion is a two-step process. We could start thinking that you get sort of step one converted and you're a step one Christian and then Jesus touches you again, you get step two converted, you're a level two Christian. That's a terrible mistake. Don't go there. There are three correct lessons we should take from this story. Lessons about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. First lesson is that spiritual sight is a gift. The man in Bethsaida couldn't just decide to see again by the force of his own wisdom or willpower. And neither could the disciples and neither could the Pharisees. The blind man needed powerful intervention from outside. And that's all of us. All of us. The only way for spiritual blindness to be overcome is for Jesus to come and heal us. That means you can never look down on people who seem to have less spiritual sight than you do. If Jesus hadn't intervened, that would be you. It brings us humility, knowing that spiritual sight is a gift. The second lesson we can take here is that 
It's when you start to gain your spiritual sight that you become aware of the blindness that remains. After the first touch, this guy in Bethsaida realised that he couldn't tell the difference between trees and people. Now, back when he was totally blind, he had no idea that that could even be a problem. It's when he starts to regain his sight, he realises the blindness that remains. Do you ever examine yourself and think, oh, I'm such a poor quality Christian? You look at your own heart and you think, I wish I loved Jesus more. I ought to love him more. Do you ever feel that? I want to tell you something. That feeling is a really good sign. It's a sign that Jesus has been working in your life. If you were completely spiritually blind, you would never say that sort of thing. You would never identify that as a problem. And so when you're feeling down about how far you have to go spiritually, rejoice. God has opened your eyes to see that. It's when you've begun to be given sight you can see what blindness remains. The third truth we can take from this passage is that spiritual sight tends to be given gradually. Our spiritual blindness actually usually doesn't just disappear in an instance. Like the disciples, even after you start following Jesus and learning from him, there's still plenty of spiritual blindness left in you. You need Jesus to keep on opening your eyes continually until you reach glory. If you're a growing Christian, then your 10-year-from-now self will look back at your current self and say, I was so blind. We see this progressive healing in the disciples. Throughout most of Mark's gospel, they see Jesus like a tree walking around. They, They see him, but they don't get him. In the next part of chapter 8, when we get to the turning point of Mark's gospel, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And it's a great breakthrough moment. But then Jesus says, "Uh uh-huh, and as Messiah, I'm going up to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And Peter says, that's crazy talk. What a load of rubbish. A lot of blindness remained. We all need ongoing healing of our spiritual blindness to see Jesus properly. Not just a second touch, but a third and a fourth and a fifth, more and more of the gift of sight throughout our lives. This is true whether you've been following Jesus for years and years and years, or whether you've just started trusting him recently, or even if you still stand at a distance and approach Jesus with scepticism. We all need Jesus to keep on opening our eyes. And the good news is that he's in the business of healing blindness. At the beginning today, we considered the Pharisees. They were blind as blind can be, right? They'd seen everything Jesus did, but they weren't just confused, they were hostile. They wanted to trip him up and get him killed. Was there any hope for the Pharisees? Well, Jesus is in the business of healing spiritual blindness. 
There was one Pharisee who was fiercely opposed to Jesus and fiercely opposed to Jesus' followers. Later on, when Jesus' followers went around claiming that he'd been raised from the dead, this Pharisee orchestrated violent attacks against Christians all over the place. He lined up the authority to have them put in prison and he went around far and wide getting them imprisoned until one day on the road to Damascus, this Pharisee was confronted by the risen Jesus. There was a voice from heaven, a blinding light that left him unable to see with his eyes until three days later, a Christian called Ananias appeared on his doorstep. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that I may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptised. The man we know is the Apostle Paul quickly became a ministry, began a ministry of proclaiming Jesus far and wide and writing letters that now make up half our New Testament. Jesus is in the business of healing spiritual blindness. Even the blindest of eyes he can make see. So will you keep on coming to him to heal your sight? Will you follow the lead of the role model in this chapter and say, Jesus, I need to see better? How about a pray for us? Lord Jesus, you are the great healer. And we want to come to you and recognise that we need to see better. Our spiritual eyes still don't see you properly. Give us more and more healing. Help us to perceive you more and more accurately and completely so we can rejoice more and more in being your people. Amen.